Welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. Some announcements. Firstly, those of you who follow these podcasts may notice that the original frequency of twice a month has slowed. The episodes are now emerging roughly every three weeks. In addition, there is a Spanish language series covering Jungian psychology, and this comes out at the start of each month. Secondly, on the 30th of October, the Quest Lectures which is an online series, are starting with a lecture every month. The lectures last about an hour and a quarter, followed by discussion. They take place via Zoom. The first two lectures will summarise the ten multidimensional crises of our time, and the following lectures cover such topics as Can Depth Psychology Be Combined with the Spirit of the Orient? In what way can it be said that the world that presents itself to our senses and our reason is illusory? Will democracy survive? Could we be faced with a global totalitarianism? What is the emerging alternative view of the cosmos and the human and planetary prospect? If you wish to register for this course, you can find contact details on my website alanmulhern.com. Today's podcast episode will examine the two major economic paradigms of laissez-faire capitalism on the one hand and the command economy on the other. It will point to the dangers of extreme laissez-faire capitalism and also to the central reasons why a communist command economy cannot work. It will also explore the decline of religion and spirituality under both these systems. Now, Why is it that command economies under the control of communist rule have all collapsed? Could there be a theoretical reason for this? Perhaps that command economies cannot work in principle. And what could that principle be? And what are the difficulties of extreme laissez-faire capitalism, which has minimal control? And what has happened, finally, to the spiritual and religious traditions under these two extreme systems of communism and capitalism. So, let us begin. The economic system is the top peacetime priority in most countries in the world. It is also a major explanation for much of human behaviour. For example, the billions of decisions that are made daily on the basis of economic data, that is, prices, wages, profits and so on constituting a vast integrated global economy that is interconnected through prices in one form or another. The pricing system is a web of information connecting all markets, making all economic activity, trade, investment decisions and cooperation possible. It holds any economy, even the world economy, together and its efficient functioning is the scarcely recognised basis of all prosperity. It is surprisingly flexible. As soon as government imposed taxation on the economy, prices, output, investment, labour demand and supply react accordingly. The forces of demand and supply are constantly altering all products and services in the world economy. Another example of the innovative power and influence of the pricing mechanism is the new pricing of carbon effectively putting a tax on carbon dioxide emitters in proportion to the estimated damage they are causing. It is hoped that 
this will play a significant part in tackling the problems of the GHGs, the greenhouse gases. The economy and pricing are constantly being altered and interfered with to reflect government social and political concerns. For example, the amount of taxation that finances the level of government expenditure, the imposition of a minimum wage, the location of government projects, crisis intervention by government, for example the pandemic. The list is very extensive and constantly changing. The capitalist economy has adapted over hundreds of years to a vast range of government intervention and it can continue to do so, for example by adapting to changing social and ecological and political concerns. Thus problems of an economy such as inequality of income and wealth, climate change, class, gender or racial discrimination, which currently are very topical concerns, are sensitive to economic pressure, especially when any interventions are backed by law and government policy. Changes in law and economic incentives promote reform, especially when working together. Changes in consciousness, including changes in moral attitudes, are also vital to this process. During 19th century Britain, for example, there was increased awareness of the dangers of vast inequality that had developed, the shocking conditions of the working classes. And this led to changes in laws, for example, the Factory Acts, the legal emergence of trade unions, restrictions on the length of the working day, and so on. By the time we reached the 1860s, John Stuart Mill was advocating a vast reform of capitalism, especially via its distributive system that is through legal alterations in wages, inheritance and wealth tax, the provision of free government services, such as what later developed into a universal education. In fact, this was the first idea of a welfare state, which was eventually formed in the United Kingdom after World War II. Any modern economic system has always had competing ideologies for how it should operate. There are two extreme ideological positions with a lot of variance in between. The first is a laissez-faire position based on the writings of the early British classical economists, for example Adam Smith and David Ricardo. This advocated the free functioning of the market and price system with minimum interference, in which the role of the government is to provide essential support such as an effective legal system, infrastructure, police, army, and only the most essential of regulation. It was claimed that the freest possible functioning of the laws of supply and demand, operating through an unimpeded price mechanism, would produce the greatest amount of wealth. Adam Smith had even articulated the famous proposition that self-interest leads to the public good. Quote, It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love, and never to talk to them of our own necessities, but of their advantages. Unquote. The Wealth of Nations, published in 1776, the same date as the United States Declaration of Independence. Such a moral philosophy conceived of moderately, of course, is self-evident. But at its more extreme, 
it turns traditional moral thinking completely upside down. The perniciousness that such a philosophy can develop into can be seen in the Great Famine in Ireland from 1845 onwards, which decimated its population and was responsible for massive emigration. Quite simply, it has been the worst famine in modern history, considering the size of the population. And it happened when Ireland was part of the United Kingdom, which was the home of capitalism, laissez-faire and free enterprise. The famine hit worst in the more remote and wilder west of Ireland, for example the county of Mayo, which is where I and my ancestors are from. A powerful account of this is given by Dr Murchada in The Great Famine, Ireland's Agony, 1845-1852, published in 2013. Brendan Daly on the website Irish Central comments on the book as follows. Quote, Charting a monumental record of abject suffering, from the destruction of the potato harvests through to the degradation inflicted by the relief programmes, the swell of fever pandemics through the workhouses, the mass clearances by landlords and the hemorrhaging emigration. The Great Famine climaxes with a sober analysis of the consequences and causes of this seminal event in Irish history. Approximately 1.1 million died and over a million emigrated during the famine. The population of Ireland plummeted from almost 8.2 million in 1841 to 6.5 million in 1851, and subsequently has never recovered, actually. Among its legacies were the physical and psychological disabilities of famine survivors in Ireland and abroad, a deep-seated hatred of Britain, ruptured social and communal intimacy, and rising conservatism in Irish society, and a highly influential Catholic Church that met a gaping spiritual yearning and provided otherwise absent leadership. The failure of private charity and state relief is central to explaining the extent of the famine, insists Dr Machada. While contributions towards famine relief were received from the United States President, the papacy, and most movingly from the Choctaw tribe of Native Americans. This was because the famine in Ireland resonated with their trail of tears and their deaths during their forced population transfer from Mississippi to Oklahoma in 1841. The impact of these so-called reliefs were tempered by soaring international food prices. While Britain spent eight million on relief programmes in Ireland during the famine, most of it as loan advances. It spent 69 million on the Crimean War, 1854 to 1856. Additionally, Dr. Merchada argues that the prevalence of providentialism, the belief among the British government that the famine was an opportunity to reform Ireland, is essential to accounting for the famine and controversially he believes Britain may have been guilty of genocide. Quote, If you're talking about a Jewish-style holocaust, a deliberate attempt 
such as by the Nazis to annihilate an entire people, then it's not that kind of genocide, he explains. But there is a case for asking if the British deliberately used the famine to thin out the ranks of the Irish by allowing mass death and emigration after 1847. Of course, it was never admitted at the time, so it can't be proven. But the question is certainly valid. Unquote. Personally, I have read accounts of a Malthusian point of view applied to the Irish and written at that time in newspapers, parliamentary reports and letters that believed that the famine was caused by the Irish themselves with their excessive reproduction, that they deserved such a punishment from God and that overpopulation was naturally dealt with brutally by a reduction in numbers. Now, one of the reasons why I quoted this is that there is a connection to the free enterprise philosophy that possessed Britain in the first half of the 19th century. The British had appointed Charles Trevelyan to oversee emergency food supplies to Ireland during the famine, and he actually withheld relief from the starving Irish, actually forbade the entrance of corn ships from America from entering Irish ports. And his reasoning was from the laissez-faire principles of classical political economy. Namely, that if foreign relief were allowed in, it would de-incentivise local farmers supplying corn. Here we see in brutal relief the interrelationship between extreme economic doctrines and moral questions, which can have a life or death impact upon millions if you remember, we started this point by examining the laissez-faire extreme of the management of capitalism, which is where the government has a hands-off approach to the economy, except for minimal support and protection, believing that the market will produce the best outcome and that there is some prevalent equilibrium system that will always be in the best interests of everyone. Unfortunately, such damaging extremes do not belong solely on the right wing of ideology. There are even more on the left wing extreme. So here we come to the second extreme, a position totally opposite to laissez-faire, which is one of a total control system or command economy. On the subject of famine, again for example, as is well known there were famines in Russia 1921-22 and China 1958-61, the latter of which had a death toll of up to 50 million. These occurred after the revolutions and were the result of the disastrous communist agricultural policies that were imposed. Let it be said in all fairness that the famines in Russia and China and many other parts of the world were not just related to socialism and capitalism but were endemic in these countries for thousands of years. And Malthus's argument that overpopulation inevitably results in famine, war and pestilence, has a great deal of relevance. With respect to the Russian and Chinese post-revolution famines, punishing the wealthier farmers, expropriating their land and produce, driving down their prices, was no way to encourage food production. Unsurprisingly, it had the opposite effect. In both these cases, their policies had to be reversed to establish food supply. If one destroys motivation, then one won't get production. This is called the motivational 
argument. And clearly this is a massive problem for communist systems with command economies. What motivation is there to work harder and longer, to sacrifice in order to invest, to build an enterprise that can be passed to one's children if the economy is collectively owned and one is not rewarded for these efforts? While Adam Smith's arguments on the vital importance of self-interest and laissez-faire principles can be immoral at the extremes, they clearly are the bedrock of any functioning economy. OK, so far, so simple. But now we have to put on our thinking caps, because the following point is more difficult to understand. Motivational arguments, then, important though they are, are not the only ones, or even the chief ones, that point to an impossibility of communist central planning working. After all, the utopian revolutionary will always argue that human motivation can be changed. It so happens that the non-motivational arguments are in fact more powerful, but are far less recognised. They were explained by the Austrian School of Economics, for example by von Mises and Hayek, especially Hayek, as well as by Max Weber, the sociologist, and Pollyani, the anthropologist. For the moment, I sketch two arguments that insist that central planning cannot work, after which I will point to their moral and even spiritual implications. The first is the calculation argument, which says there has to be a freely operative price mechanism, which is a signalling system embodying complex information of demand and supply for all goods and services, so that resources can be mobilised, moved, invested, so that supply can take place efficiently, and so that the equally complex needs of demand can be met. Prices are the distributed knowledge system. They carry information, they carry knowledge. That is dynamic and ever-changing, reflecting the numerous forces making up the supply and demand of the billions of transactions in the economy. Flexible prices are required to transmit the information about relative scarcities of goods and services. This cannot be replaced by central planners and their computers, who can never do the billions of calculations required to allocate the totality of transactions in an economy. Those who believe in the infinite power of computers may reply that in the digital age, this calculation problem can be overcome because of the processing power and sophistication of computers. I personally don't believe it, and even if we had to pump in all the information concerning all our demand and supply needs and wants, we'd waste most of our time putting in the information rather than actually working. However, more importantly, this brings us to the second closely related but far more powerful epistemic argument. Hayek argued it very powerfully and it was reinforced by Pagliani. Epistemic, coming from the word epistemology, refers to knowledge. The calculation problem is that while the information or knowledge may be available, it can't be calculated. The epistemic argument is deeper and says that such knowledge is by its very nature unobtainable and only partially known even by those who could supposedly supply it. Entrepreneurs or consumers, for example. 
This knowledge is highly distributed across the economy. Implicit, not explicit. And therefore only partially known. It's semi-conscious, semi-unconscious. And is embodied in entrepreneurial and local practices and skills. In a more radical manner, much of that knowledge is literally impossible to source because it involves estimates of the future and variables that are impossible to calculate. So, the essence of the argument is that not only is the essential knowledge for an economy to function virtually impossible to calculate, much of it is not available because it is only emergent in the market system that is, reflected in the process of price discovery by which market participants, by the process of demand and supply, establish a price that emerges from that interaction. The word emergent refers to systems theory by which new phenomena emerge which cannot be anticipated from the previous variables that made it up. This is a word much used in evolutionary theory. It follows from this that central planning cannot work for the economy as a whole. The underlying reason why the gigantic experiments of the Soviet Union and China failed is because a central planning system, especially in a large complex economy, cannot work, no matter what the motivation of its participants this is a technical question of what constitutes the core of an economy. And of that core, its allocation system through pricing of the totality of its products and services is non-functional, like in a command economy, then the result is disaster. It matters not a jot what the charismatic leaders of the new regimes have said or promised. It matters not what is accused concerning the profound injustices of the system the command economy is trying to replace, capitalism or imperialism typically. Any new economic system that works by total command simply is an economic sham. And in large economies with many millions of people's lives and livelihoods at stake, this is a huge moral responsibility. These systems turn out to be more crisis-prone and corrupt than those they so brutally and pompously replace. Otherwise, why did China and Russia do a 180-degree about turn and scrap their communist commands economy? Why did China adopt a market economy, although it retained its communist system at political levels, its communist party? It introduced a market economy with huge economic success. Isn't that the evidence evidence is needed in this for the argument just given. There has to be a theoretical reason why the command economies of Russia and China failed so spectacularly. It's not just an empirical question. There must be a theoretical reason lying in the heart of the command economy. And to my mind the best arguments given are first of all the motivational arguments which everyone knows but far more importantly than that are the calculation and especially the epistemic argument just presented. Command economies don't work because they can't. The economy cannot function at its core. 
Resources cannot be allocated. The billions of transactions required in an economy daily cannot be executed properly because the price system is not functioning. It's the price system that contains all the information and signalling for all these transactions to take place reasonably efficiently. And that is taking place implicitly throughout the economy every single moment. If that's wrecked, it's like wrecking one's blood supply to the body, or the neurochemistry of the brain, or the nervous system that connects the whole body. The transmission mechanism of all information is not working. Now one of the remarkable things about this piece of knowledge so forcefully put forward by Frederick Hayek is that this was presented back in the 1930s, almost a hundred years ago. Indeed, his predecessors in the Austrian school had presented it at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. For them, this was old knowledge. And yet, the communist experiments and the command economy experiments have been repeated with the same results numerous times. I think the appropriate phrase is, if one does not learn from history, one is doomed to repeat it. But while the command economy mistake has been repeated many times, so is the laissez-faire, non-government intervention position. It was only recently, during the 1980s, 1990s and early 2000s, that a laissez-faire position was taken, especially with respect to financial markets. But these programmes led to the 2007 and 2008 credit crunch and resulted in the largest contractions since the Great Depression. But aside from economics... These two systems, they say fair in the command economy, communism, taken at their extreme, have had a deadly impact upon religious traditions and upon spirituality in general. I make the distinction between religion and spirituality since the former is usually structured as an organisation while the latter is a state of inner awareness. While ideally these should work together, unfortunately this is not always the case. Religions can become the vehicles of the state and genuine spirituality can be persecuted even by religions themselves. The communist systems are almost always driven by a Marxist-Leninist materialistic philosophy of one variant or another and this is violently anti-religious and anti-spiritual. The only religions that survive in communism are those sanctioned by the state clearly for the purposes of social control. At the core of Marxist philosophy is the conviction that religion is a gigantic sham, a tool of the ruling classes to convince the masses that the reason for their poverty or misery lies in their sins or their fate, their karma. The idea of an afterlife is anathema to this philosophy. Religion is designed to control the masses and maintain them subject to their rulers, while so-called spirituality is illusion. And superstition. Religion is the opium of the people, is Marx's famous phrase. Instead, he provided an account of history based on materialistic factors such as class struggle, and he saw it as vital to adopt a scientific view of the world, which is the path for clear thinking, freedom and revolutionary action. Marxism has a hatred of the religious mentality and the history of communism is full of religious persecution. Capitalism is quite different in this respect. 
With regard to the scientific enlightenment, which was its necessary predecessor, many of its key early thinkers and scientists had deep religious convictions. Newton is a case in point. However, as the Western Enlightenment progressed, and as a scientific view of the world gained force, then religion lost ideological ground, so to speak. The older, twilight world of magic, superstition, fairy tales, folklore, legend and myth also faded with the rising dawn of scientific consciousness. Nevertheless, as Max Weber famously argued, it was a new religious attitude, that of Protestantism, that was crucial for the birth of capitalism, say from the 15th century onwards, since it provided the individualism, the sense of righteousness, purpose and even destiny of the emerging capitalist classes that were mostly Protestant and from Northern Europe, which had broken away from the medieval Catholicism of Southern Europe. Protestantism provided a new sense of value to saving and thrift, to investment and employment, to hard work and to the righteous reward of the master. It opposed the corruption, waste and conspicuous consumption of the Catholic Church and infused a new sense of sobriety to economic power. It also appreciated technology and even science. Protestantism and the scientific enlightenment were the midwives of capitalism. However, capitalism is the most dynamic economic system in history. It was soon to also dispense with Protestantism, but this was not the result of persecution. The most powerful blow to religion in general, in the Western world, has been purely in the realm of ideas. For as the industrial spirit gained force, and as freedom of religious belief and practice became possible, in this part of the world at least, then those countries at the centre of this change became more convinced that the universe, our world, and all its life, even our minds, could be accounted for materialistically. At first, these were explained mechanically, but later, in more sophisticated terms, as scientific understanding progressed. There have been many milestones on this journey. One of the most powerful paradigm shifts occurred with the Darwinian Revolution, the 1860s, which provided theory and evidence that the human race evolved from nature and that there was now a new scientific account for life on Earth with no need for religious explanations. However, all paradigms undergo change. They are also subject to struggle within themselves, but also to conflicts with opposing and different paradigms. In the last episode, I mentioned that a Falun Gong movement, akin to Tai Chi and Qigong, existed in China and was extremely popular in the 1990s and the early 2000s. Eventually, the Communist Party of China, the CPC, drove it out of effective existence, probably seeing it as a threat to their Marxist-Leninist philosophy. It is said that at one point it had, had millions of followers. Such events give rise to the thought that spiritual forces lie in the masses, despite all the indoctrination of the party. If China were to disintegrate, then such movements could arise again. 
However, the whole history of China has been an effort to create unification of a gigantic landmass with very varied populations. Thus, the Communist Party of China is intent on totalitarian control to prevent this happening and to further its economic growth programme. A related question lies for the West and its capitalist experiment and its commitment to science and technology. Could it be that the 21st century will offer a competing paradigm to the materialistic worldview that has dominated it for hundreds of years? Could it be that science itself will help this alternative worldview emerge by offering a different vision of reality? This question in particular will occupy us in the coming episodes.